Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, Ragers, how are we doing? So for those of you who don't follow the podcast on Instagram, first of all, what are you doing? That's where all of the updates and fun stuff is. Follow the show at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. I gave a little bit of an update in the stories yesterday about what was going on with this week's episode. I had initially intended on doing an episode covering the Attica prison uprising, but it's a lot of work and I still have some more to do on it to get it to a place where I feel like it's ready to go out into the world. So I was initially going to do a re-release of a previous episode from Black History Month. But after seeing everything in the media and on social media about Beyonce's new song, Texas Hold'em, I decided that I almost wanted to do a continuation of the conversation that I started in the Harlem Renaissance episode about Black musicians and extend that into country music. Country music's roots lie in the 1920s during the time of the Harlem Renaissance. And if you listened to last week's episode, you know it was a time of a boom in economics, culture, population, and media, dividing the country into those who embraced the future and those who were stuck in the past. While country music has long been seen as a racist, white person's genre of music, country music, according to those who have studied this, I'm not just saying it, has historically been more diverse than most other musical genres. Blues and African-American gospel music is at the root of country music, and the early black musicians played an integral role on the development of the country music genre. One of the best-known country songs in history, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, began as a spiritual. So when your Aunt Karen starts complaining about Beyonce's new country song, have them listen to this episode. So what is country music? Chris Christopherson once called country music probably the white man's soul music, but it is so much more than that. Country didn't come from the accepted, the affluent, or the lucky, but from the fringes of American society, the hills and the plains, the rural parts of America that are seen as less desirable than the big cities. Country music begins with the banjo. The modern-day banjo is a descendant of a West African instrument made from gourds called a conting. When enslaved persons were taken from Africa to America, their instruments came right along with them. In the 1840s, in fact, the banjo was seen as an exclusively black instrument. It was unheard of for a white person to play such an instrument. Enslaved people created their own music for hundreds and hundreds of years. Hymns, spirituals, and field songs, all of which very much inspired country music. In the 1850s, minstrel shows came into raging popularity. These shows were horrendously racist and were a form of satirical entertainment in which white people could dress in blackface to mock black people and their culture. These shows portrayed black people as lazy, stupid, and foolish. They would perform the music and dance styles of the enslaved people and would use instruments like the banjo. However awful these shows were, minstrel shows introduced white audiences to the new instrument. And of course, you shit on the people, their music, their culture, then you fucking steal it and claim it as your own. Gosh, I'm sure glad that doesn't happen anymore. Sigh. Hillbilly music then became popular, and this was obviously a white person's genre by the name of it, but they stole a lot of the instrumentation from the black community. Hillbilly music would eventually be called country music, and it became the music of the South. The first hillbilly artists also took their inspiration from spirituals, field songs, hymns, and the blues. Though much of the country was incredibly segregated, many black and white artists collaborated together on a number of tracks that would become quite popular. According to Patrick Huber, a history professor at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, quote, nearly 50 African-American singers and musicians appeared on commercial hillbilly records between those years, 1920s and 1930s, because the music was not a white agrarian tradition, but a fluid phenomenon passed back and forth between races. 
To me, then, it seems that the Black community was somewhat eager to share their music with their white counterparts, possibly even finding it flattering that they would want to perform their style of music and perform alongside of them. Country artist Jimmy Rogers worked with Louis Armstrong in the 1929 song Blue Yodel No. 9. In that song, the, quote, father of country music, yodels and sings the tale of a Tennessee hustler while Louis fills the space with his blues licks. According to Huber, again, who wrote the essay Black Hillbillies, African-American Musicians and Old Time Records, 1924 to 1932, he wrote that the diversity in this genre of music at the time was higher than any other except for maybe vaudeville blues. He wrote, quote, as a result of exchanges and borrowing and theft and parody, Southern music pre-World War I was fundamentally multicultural. But as hillbilly music became commercially successful in the 20s, record labels began to divide the genre into hillbilly records and race records, thinking that consumers would purchase their music based on race. Many of the black performers on hillbilly records would go uncredited and removed from marketing images and other materials, and would even be swapped out for white stand-ins on stage. This kind of marketing and whitewashing positioned the genre as a, quote, authentic return to the music of the ideal rural white mountain south, which put itself in direct opposition of black modern dance music. Leslie Riddle, a black guitar player, helped A.P. Carter of the Carter family to hone his repertoire of mountain songs and influenced the style of finger-picking of Maybell Carter, who is now considered one of the most influential guitarists of all time. Another black musician, Rufus T. Tot Payne, mentored a young Hank Williams. Gus Cannon taught a young Johnny Cash. Even the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, says he owes it all to black guitarist Arnold Schultz. But all of these black artists would never receive the stardom that their mentees would go on to achieve. But let's talk about a few who definitely made waves. The first is DeFord Bailey. DeFord Bailey, often referred to as the harmonica wizard, as he was best known for playing the harmonica, was a country and blues artist from the 1920s until the 40s. He was one of the first performers ever to be introduced on the Nashville radio station WSM's Grand Ole Opry, the first black person to appear on the show, and the first black performer to have his music recorded in Nashville. He's from Smith County, Tennessee, and had a really rough start of his life. His mother died when he was only one year old and was raised by his aunt, Barbara Lou. When he was just three years old, he contracted polio and was confined to his bed for a year and could only move his head and arms. Poor baby. While being imprisoned in his body and in his bed, he spent the time learning to play the harmonica. I've known a lot of three-year-olds in my lifetime, and I cannot imagine any of them learning to play the harmonica well. Hell, T couldn't even tie his shoes well when I left him, and he was almost 10. That doesn't make me look great as a nanny. It was the parents' fault. I tried. DeFord said that he came from a tradition of black hillbilly music, and his grandfather was a locally well-known fiddle player in Smith County. When playing the harmonica, he imitated the sounds he heard around him in the natural world, the sounds of trains traveling through the countryside, and the sounds of animals. He said later on, Oh, I wore it out trying to imitate everything I hear. Hens, foxes, turkeys, and all those trains and things on the road. Everything around me. DeFord eventually recovered from polio, but as a result, he would remain slightly, quote-unquote, misshapen, a word that came up a lot in my research, and he only grew to be about 4 feet 10 inches tall. He looked so young that as a teenager, he would often be mistaken for as a child by railroad ticket agents. I guess if it's cheaper, go for it. <laughs> DeFord and his family moved to Nashville in 1918. After appearing on the Grand Ole Opry radio show for the first time, he became a regular until 1941. At that time, he toured with major country artists such as Uncle Dave Macon, Bill Monroe, and Roy Acuff. All white dudes. Some of his best-known songs from this time are well-known classics like Cow Cow Blues and his own signature Opry songs like the train imitating Pan American Blues and Dixie Flyer Blues. Much like with the artists from the later civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s that's been discussed on the show, black touring artists would often find it incredibly difficult to find food and lodging while on tour due to Jim Crow laws, and his race was also mostly hidden from his radio audience. Huber said of DeFord, quote, He was a mascot. He was very much treated paternalistically. He was fired by WSM in 1941 due to licensing conflicts, and this prevented him from ever playing his best-known songs again on the radio. I don't know. This seems fishy to me. Licensing conflicts? 
Being let go from the Opry effectively ended his performance and recording career. He spent the rest of his life running a shoeshine stand and renting out rooms in his home to get by. Four years after being let go from the Opry, its founder, George D. Hay, allegedly wrote, like some members of his race and other races, DeFord was lazy. He never stopped playing the harmonica for himself, but he stopped performing publicly. But in 1974, he did make a rare appearance back at the Opry. This was an event to mark the Opry leaving the Ryman Auditorium to the Grand Ole Opry House. After this, he would come back to the Opry to perform occasionally, playing again in 1974 on his 75th birthday in December, and again in April 1982. He would pass away just a few months later in July. I learned of a documentary of DeFord Bailey's life that was made in 2005 called DeFord Bailey, A Legend Lost on PBS, which is now on my list. And you should add it to yours, too, if you're interested in learning more about him. He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2005 as well. The Encyclopedia of Country Music calls him the most significant black country star before World War II. Now, while DeFord truly made leaps and bounds for Black artists, specifically in the country music genre, this next person I'm going to discuss is literally mentioned all over my research for every other person I'm going to talk about, and that is Charlie Pride. When I called Max yesterday and we were talking and I told him that I was going to do an episode all about Black country musicians, he was like, have you read about Charlie Pride? And I was like, yes, I have. And I gave him a bunch of facts that I learned about him. And I felt very proud of myself that I was able to be like, look at me. I know all this music knowledge. (laughs) And Charlie Pride is really fucking cool because not only would he be an accomplished musician in his lifetime, but he was also a baseball player. He was born in Sledge, Mississippi in 1934 and was the fourth of 11 children of poor sharecroppers. His parents had wanted to name him Charles Frank Pride, but there was a clerical error on his birth certificate making his legal name Charlie Frank Pride. Assholes. His older brother Mac would go on to play Negro League Baseball, which is also something that I definitely need to bring up on the show because it's something that Max has watched a lot of documentaries on and stuff, so I do already know a little bit about it, and it's very fascinating. Charlie was also a distant relative of the guitarist and singer Chris Stone Kingfish Ingram, who is around today and is very, very talented. When Charlie was 14, his mother gave him his first guitar, and he taught himself to play. He loved music, but he also had a dream of becoming a professional baseball player. And that dream would almost become a reality in 1952, when he began pitching for the Memphis Red Sox of the Negro American League. He signed a contract in 1953 with the Boise Yankees, a Class C farm team of the New York Yankees. He had some issues on this team and would be demoted to the D team in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, which just sounds like a drag. He pitched for several other minor league teams, his dreams of making the big leagues still alive in him, until he was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956. He would still play baseball in the Army, though, and played on Fort Carson's baseball team in Colorado. The team even won the All-Army Sports Championship. After the war, he tried rejoining baseball, but his run was short after an injury to his throwing arm. Once he was laid off from his last team, the Timberjacks, He moved on to construction work in Helena, Montana in 1960. In Montana, he played ball for a local semi-pro team, and the manager of the team took a liking to him. He got Charlie a job at a local lead smelter and noticed Charlie's singing ability as well. So he paid Charlie to sing for 15 minutes before each game. The pay increased with the attendance of each game, earning Charlie more and more money. He would earn about $10 playing per game and another $10 just for singing. He then began playing venues in the local area, both as a solo artist and with a band called the Nighthawks. But as he started his family and his music career began to take off, they decided to move to Texas in 1969. His big break came when Chet Atkins at RCA Records heard one of his demos, getting him a contract with the prestigious record company. He released his first single in 1965 with The Snakes Crawl at Night, but the song didn't chart. His third single, Just Between You and Me, finally brought him success on the country charts, reaching number nine on the Hot Country Songs of February 1967. The success of this song was enormous. Charlie was nominated for a Grammy for the song, and in the late summer of 1966, he booked his first large show. The singer was promoted as Country Charlie Pride, but no photo was used in the promotions for a very deliberate reason. 
RCA didn't think that people would show up to see a black performer. Charlie once said, quote, People didn't care if I was pink. RCA signed me. They knew I was colored. They decided to put the record out and let it speak for itself. Since no biographical information had been included with any of his singles, very few of those 10,000 country fans that showed up for his first big show at Detroit's Olympia Stadium knew that Charlie was black. The crowd cheered and applauded, waiting for Charlie to hit the stage. But as he walked out, the noise dwindled down to silence. He told the audience, quote, Friends, I realize it's a little unique, me coming out here with a permanent suntan to sing country and western to you. But that's the way it is. This show in Detroit was the first in a long line of very large stage performances. He became the first black artist to perform at the Grand Ole Opry since the aforementioned DeFord Bailey in 1967. DeFord had last performed there in 1941. From 1969 to 1971, Charlie Pride had eight singles that reached number one on the country charts, as well as charting on the Billboard Hot 100. He also crossed over a bit into pop music, reflecting the pop country sound that was reaching country music at the time, which was called Country Politan. Charlie was so popular that it was only Elvis Presley who ever sold more records than Pride for RCA. Charlie performed the national anthem for the 1980 World Series, keeping his love of baseball in his heart, as well as for the Super Bowl. In 2010, he was invited to the World Series once again, performing alongside the Del Rio High School JROTC Color Guard, even after having a tumor removed from his right vocal cord in 1997. He officially became a member of the Grand Ole Opry in 1993. In 2020, he received the Willie Nelson Lifetime Achievement Award. His love for baseball never wavered, and he eventually became part owner of the Texas Rangers team and would perform the national anthem at many of their games. Tragically, Charlie Pride passed away due to complications from the COVID-19 virus. He died in Dallas, Texas on December 12, 2020. He was 86 years old. Now, the next person that I want to talk about, I never would have presumed to have been classified as a country artist. I guess kind of like people are assuming about Beyonce. And that person is Ray Charles. Ray Charles was born in 1930 in Albany, Georgia, to his father, Bailey, a laborer, and his mother, Aretha, a laundress. Ray's musical curiosity sparked when he heard boogie woogie music on an old upright piano at a cafe. And then the owner offered to teach the young boy how to play. At the age of four, he began to lose his sight, and by the age of seven, he was blind, most likely due to glaucoma. And finding a school for a blind black child would not be easy for his mother, Aretha. But when he got to school, he really began to develop musically and was taught classical pieces of Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. His teacher, Mrs. Lawrence, taught him to read Braille music, which is an incredibly difficult process, which requires learning the left-hand movements while reading the music with your right hand and vice versa on the other hand, then combining the two parts. Aretha then unfortunately passed away when Ray was only 14 years old, which was a total shock to him. He didn't return to school after the funeral. He then moved to Jackson, Florida to live with a friend of his late mother's and began playing piano at the Ritz Theater in La Villa for about a year, earning $4 a night. To help him get more work, he joined the local 632 American Federation of Musicians and used the union's hall pass to practice since he didn't have a piano of his own. He first modeled himself after Nat King Cole, a singer and jazz pianist, and released a few recordings of songs in a similar style in the early 1950s. While playing in Florida, he played with a group of country musicians called the Florida Playboys. There's those country roots! When he moved to North Seattle in 1948, he began lessons from Robert Blackwell and befriended fellow musician who would go on to be an amazing producer, Quincy Jones. In 1962, his love of country music really shone through when he released an album called Modern Sounds in Country Music, which is one of his many homages to his love of the genre. He is even part of Country Music's Hall of Fame. Next up is Linda Martell. She was born Thelma Bynum on June 4, 1941 in Leesville, South Carolina. She was one of five and her dad Clarence was a sharecropper while her mother worked at a chicken slaughterhouse. To avoid helping with sharecropping duties, she learned to cook at the age of seven to help out with family dinners. On top of his job as a sharecropper, her dad was also a preacher. While at church, she sang in the choir, singing gospel music that eventually led her to being interested in country music. 
Clarence, her father, was a fan of Hank Williams, and country music was often played at home. She said later on in life that she didn't know there was even any other kinds of music until she reached her teen years. Martell, her sister, and a cousin formed a singing trio which they called the Anglos, and the group performed around Columbia, South Carolina. It was local DJ Charles Big Saul Green who gave her a new name, saying she looked like a Linda, which is sweet because Linda in Spanish means pretty. Her singing trio performed mostly R&B, and the group even released some records that gave them some moderate fame. But they parted ways when her cousin got married, and her sister left the group soon after that. Linda performed as a solo act for the first time ever now, and she was still singing the rhythm and blues, until she was singing on a South Carolina Air Force base, and a Nashville furniture salesman, William Duke Rayner, offered to arrange a demo for her to be made. She initially declined the offer, thinking he was a kook, right on ya kid. But after much encouragement, she accepted his proposal and he became her manager. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, but this reminds me of that thing you do. There was the guy that just like lived in a van or whatever. I can't remember what his job was, but he just offered to be the manager for this band. Are you crazy? A man in a really nice camper wants to put our song on the radio. Give me a pen, I'm signing your sign, we're all signing. Rayner was impressed by the popularity of Charlie Pride, and he believed that Linda could be accepted in the same industry. This guy said to Ebony Magazine in 1970, and this is so racially insensitive, so I'm warning you all, quote, I figured that I could find a colored girl that could sing country and western. I'd really have something. Gross. Linda flew to Nashville where she met producer Shelby Singleton and he convinced her to sign a record deal as a country singer, which surprised Linda. She told Rolling Stone in 2020, I was a little bit shocked. I was mostly doing pop, but he said, you gotta go country. Singleton, Rayner, and Linda then produced her first demo record together. There was a pretty big problem, though, with her new management. Singleton owned what was called the Plantation Record Label, a name very clearly derived from the plantations of the American South. And Linda was clearly and rightfully incredibly uncomfortable with this. But she felt like she had no choice but to go along with it. These guys were willing to help make her dream a reality. Did she really want to rock the boat? I think most women can understand this with feeling uncomfortable with male authority figures and having them do things that are uncomfortable. But adding in the fact that she is a young black woman truly does show the difference in the power between her record company and herself. It just makes me so sad that she had to put up with that. Linda's first singles would reach the Billboard Hot Country charts, and her first album, Color Me Country, was released in August of 1970. This record reached number 40 on the Billboard Top Country Albums chart and was reviewed super favorably. After this, she started to appear on TV shows and made her debut at the Grand Ole Opry radio show. With this, she became the first ever black female artist to play for the show, and she would eventually go on to play 12 more times. In the South, she was marketed as the, quote, first female Negro country artist and was lumped together into shows with white country singers Waylon Jennings and Hank Snow. It wasn't easy for Linda to play for white audiences. She remembers being taunted, having racial slurs hollered at her while she was performing. She once said, quote, You're going to run into hecklers, and I did. You felt pretty awful. As her career went on, the taunting lessened, but it never went away entirely. This caused her professional conflict. A different kind of conflict arose later between Linda and Singleton, who thought he deserved a bigger cut. Singleton also started promoting other artists over Linda, and when Linda left the record company, he totally blackballed her, which, according to Linda, ruined her reputation in country music. She tried for several more years with limited success and eventually chose to retire from music professionally entirely. She continued performing throughout the U.S. for the next 20 years in small clubs, in each of the places she performed, she held down different jobs to get by, including performing on a cruise ship and opening a record store. In 1991, she came back to South Carolina to be closer to her children and began making a living as a bus driver for her region's school district. Back home, she also began performing with a band on the weekends where she would entertain all different functions like family reunions and anniversary parties or weddings. Many of the residents had no idea of Linda's former life, but co-workers at the schools she worked for most certainly did. In one high school assembly, a principal spoke to their students about Linda's earlier work, saying, 
Others study Black history. We have Black history right here in our school. Linda retired from her bus driving job in the mid-2000s, and her last public performance was in 2011 with her band Easy, spelled E-A-Z-Z-Y. She became a topic of conversation after country artist Reese Palmer, who I'm going to talk about a little later, named her podcast after Linda's album Color Me Country. Linda also supports the underrepresented voices of BIPOC artists in country music. There was also a GoFundMe that was set up by Linda's granddaughter in 2021 to create a documentary about Linda's career and struggles as a black female performer in Nashville. Linda is still alive and kicking today, having beat cancer once already and is living with one of her children in South Carolina. Next up is Stoney Edwards. Born Frenchie Edwards on Christmas Eve in 1929, both Stoney and Frenchie are freaking adorable names. And he's the youngest of seven kids to rescue Edwards, who people called Bub, and his wife, Ollie, known as Red, in North Carolina. Great names all the way around. I applaud you all. Stoney dreamt of playing for the Grand Ole Opry since he was a child, but it didn't seem like he dabbled much in music when he was young. Once he started a family and moved to San Francisco, though, he began playing music in his spare time. A job-related accident in 1968 would totally change his world. He was working as a forklift operator in a steel refinery and was trapped in a sealed-up tank and suffered severe carbon dioxide poisoning. For the next two years, he was either in a coma, a near coma, or in a state bordering on insanity. As his condition improved, he took odd jobs while he still devoted more of his time to making music. He liked to sing the honky-tonk style music like Lefty Frizzle and Merle Haggard. In 1970, during a benefit for his hero, Bob Wills, in Oakland, California, Stoney was spotted by a local attorney, Ray Sweeney, who wanted to take a page out of Duke Rayner's book and, like in Linda's case, wanted to find himself a black country artist to profit off of, especially with Charlie Pride's fame at the time. Just six months after recovering from his accident, Stoney was signed with Capitol Records. His first single was A $2 Toy, which was inspired by an incident in which his plans to leave his family were abandoned by the sound of a child's toy. And this was based on a true story. He had refused to sue the steel company when he had his accident, and he wouldn't allow his wife to accept welfare. And he thought his family would be better off with one less mouth to feed. However, when he went to leave, he stepped on a toy, waking his daughter Jessica, and he decided to stay. Stoney released five albums at Capitol Records, and two of his singles reached the top 20. He never made the chart-topping success of Charlie Pride, but he had a very devoted following. One of his songs, She's My Rock, would be a number six single for Brenda Lee and a number two hit for George Jones. Another one of his hits that you may have heard is Hank and Lefty Raise My Country Soul, one of his songs, Blackbird, Hold Your Head High, from 1976, stirred up controversy as one of the lines in the song is, quote, just a couple of country N-words, which was seen as a negative, though the song had an affirming message. His health and career began to decline in the 80s, and he died of stomach cancer in April of 1997. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The next person I looked up was Howdy Glenn, and this guy doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. He was never commercially successful, but he is legendary in his own right. He was often compared to Charlie Pride because of the fact that they were, well, both black country artists and they had similar singing styles. Howdy's first single was I Can Almost See Houston, which was a minor regional hit from an independent record label. He combined spoken word narratives with his silky singing voice with a tune that often resembled soft rock with mainstream country tropes of the time. Warner Brothers' Andy Wickham, who had also helped bring stardom to Joni Mitchell, Emmylou Harris, and Graham Parsons, penned a major record deal for Howdy, dubbing him the singing fireman since he worked as a fireman before entering the music industry. Warner Brothers set Howdy up with the best session players around, and his first single release was a cover of Merle Haggard's White Line Deaver, which unfortunately didn't reach much success. Next, they recorded a cover of Willie Nelson's Tough Me, which would reach the country music charts in September of 1977 at number 62. He would also chart just once more in his career with a poppy cover of David Houston's You Mean the World to Me in 1978, but that was it. Warner Brothers recorded a few more singles before dropping him, and Howdy put out some music on his own before returning to firefighting in the 80s. One can only think that it had to do with his race and the country music establishment that kept him from reaching the success he deserved. As many people who know his music better than I do say his songs really hold up and are top quality. This next one was also a surprise to me, as I wouldn't have considered them to be country either, but the Pointer Sisters! I'm so They actually started out as a country group. The group consisted of sisters June and Bonnie Pointer at first, with June being born in 1953 and Bonnie in 1950 in Oakland, California. Growing up with a reverend as a father, June, Bonnie, and their other siblings were encouraged to listen only to gospel music. They were told rock and roll and the blues was the devil's music. It was only when their parents were away that the kids would get together and sing the devil's songs. There were four girls, Ruth, Anita, Bonnie, and June, and one boy, Aaron. As a child, the Pointer children performed at the Church of God in Christ congregation in Oakland. But as they grew up, the sisters' love for other styles of music began to flourish. Interestingly enough, there are some similarities between the Pointer sisters and Charlie Pride as well, but maybe not for the same reasons as other artists. Their brother Aaron Pointer was a major league baseball player, eventually playing for a team that was once great but is now hated by many for cheating, the Astros. If Max were in the room, he would go on a very long rant right now. He led the Western Carolina circuit in runs and batting average and was named both MVP and an all-star. Way to go, Aaron Pointer. On top of that, the sisters are also first cousins with NBA player and head coach Paul Silas. The sisters all graduated from high school in Oakland, and by the time June graduated, Anita and Ruth had already married and had children. But Bonnie and June wanted a career in show business instead. They performed as a duo, Pointers Au Pair, and later Anita quit her job to join the group. They began touring and performing around and provided backing vocals for other artists such as a former feminist fave subject, Betty Davis. The sisters were discovered in 1971 while playing in a nightclub and got a recording contract with Atlantic Records. While with Atlantic, none of their music would be hits, but they were recording some really great stuff. After a while, their other sister Ruth gave into temptation and joined the group as well. Now a quartet, they signed with Blue Thumb Records and recorded their first album. The album The Pointer Sisters was released in 1973 and received strong reviews and had a jazz debop style to it. Their second album from 1974, That's a Plenty, kept the style of the first album, but added in a country song called Fairy Tale, which would become a 
hit. It reached number 13 on the pop charts and number 37 on the country charts. The group was then invited to Nashville and became the first black singing group ever to perform at the Grand Ole Opry. They won a Grammy for Best Country Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal in 1975 for Fairy Tale, with Anita and Bonnie receiving additional nominations as songwriters. Elvis eventually recorded his own version of the song, giving it even more attention. After Fairy Tale, they reached more and more heights to their success, but never returned to the country game. But Anita dipped her toe in those honky-tonk waters again in 1986 when she got together with Earl Thomas Conley and recorded the song Too Many Times, which reached number two on the country charts. Next is Frankie Statton. Frankie began waking up singing songs she heard in her dreams when she was just a little girl. She also doesn't have a Wikipedia page, so all this information is from the Opry website. Between 1977 and 1981, she was a singer and pianist at the High Point Market, the world's largest home furnishings trade show, which would attract somewhere between 70,000 and 80,000 people from over 100 countries. She moved to Nashville in 1981 to work as a piano player and songwriter in a larger music market. She had a residency as a performer at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel and Convention Center, one of the largest hotels in the world, and also performed at many other iconic venues around Nashville. In 1997, she responded to the New York Times' claim that diversity did not exist in country music, so she created the first Black Country Music Showcase at the Bluebird Cafe that year. She continued her efforts to help country music artists of color throughout the 90s in the Nashville music scene and sparked a conversation about race and country music. She was part of the Black Opry's do-it-yourself initiatives, and in 2023, her hard work was finally paid off, though long overdue. She finally performed on the Grand Ole Opry stage. Cleve Thomas was born in 1945 in Jennings, Louisiana, beginning his career as a folk and blues singer and songwriter in the late 1960s while attending grad school at the College of William and Mary, where he would graduate in 1969. He then attended medical school, eventually becoming a cardiologist, but for some reason decided to switch it up in the 80s and get more into his music. I can only imagine what his parents would have to say about this. After being signed to Playback Records, he released the single, Love Light. After seeing Love Light's music video on country music television, or CMT, record producer Jimmy Bowen signed him to Liberty Records in 1992, and he would release three albums through Liberty from 1992 through 1994. Four of his singles hit the Billboard charts, but in 1994, he returned to his medical practice in Northern Virginia. He would then become president of the Mount Vernon Cardiology Associates. What an interesting fella. But then, in 2006, he recorded a live album of his 1970s self-released folk album, Follow Me, which also included unreleased demos from 1968 and 1970. His most popular song would be his 1992 hit, You Do My Heart Good. Next up is Darius Rucker, who I actually know his country music, but I had no idea he was part of a different band. I'm not going to blow it yet, though. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Darius Rucker was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina, to a single mother named Carolyn, who worked as a nurse and also raised his three other sisters and two brothers. According to Rucker, his father was never around. He only ever saw him before church on Sundays because he was in a gospel band called The Traveling Echoes. Rucker said that he was raised very economically poor, and at one time his mom, two sisters, his grandma, and 14 other children were all living in one three-bedroom house. Even so, he looks back on his childhood with very fond memories, and his sister La Corinne remembers singing Always Being His Dream. Darius Rucker was the lead singer of the immensely popular 80s and 90s band Hootie and the Blowfish since its creation in 1986. Of course I've heard of Hootie and the Blowfish. I had absolutely no idea what any of them look like or who any of them are. <laughs> he met his fellow bandmates Mark Bryan, Jim Sonny Sunfield, and Dean Feller while attending the University of South Carolina. It's pretty cute. Mark Bryan had heard Rucker singing in the shower, and the two became a duo at first, playing R.E.M. covers at a local venue. It's adorable. Hootie and the Blowfish, like I had said, was incredibly popular. They recorded six studio albums and charted in the top 40 six times. As the frontman, Rucker began being called Hootie by his fans, though the band name is actually a combination of all the nicknames of his college friends. 
Rucker said he had flipped the formula of the all-black band backing up the white frontman with Hootie and the Blowfish. But musically, he was often criticized for not being black enough. There was even a sketch on SNL with Tim Meadows playing Rucker, leading beer-drinking white fraternity members in a countermarch to Louis Farrakhan's Million Man March, a massive protest that occurred in 1995 where black civil rights activists came together around the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to get politicians' attention on minority issues. On the flip side, when the band released The Sound Drowning, which is a protest song against the flying of the Confederate flag above the South Carolina State House, he received death threats. He made his solo R&B move in 2001, but after making an album in that style, he said, quote, I was listening to a lot of Notorious B.I.G. and Lauryn Hill at the time, and I wanted to make a neo-soul record, but that he didn't intend to be doing another R&B style record again, saying, quote, Country music is my day job now. I'll probably do this till it's all over. But that album was a lot of fun. When he began his country music career, he joined Capitol Records and began releasing singles and albums that did very well critically and by public acclaim. He made his Grand Ole Opry debut in 2008. He would officially become a member of the Grand Ole Opry when Brad Paisley asked him to join in 2012. His single Learn to Live from his second album reached number one in September of 2008, making him the first solo black artist to chart a number one country hit since, you guessed it, Charlie Pride with his 1983 song Night Games. One song of Darius Rucker's that I've known that I didn't realize was a cover of an old Crow Medicine Show song called Wagon Wheel, which he released in his third album True Believers. His version of the song earned him a nomination for Best Country Solo Performance at the Grammys in 2013, and he won at the ceremony in January 2014, becoming only the third Black American recording artist. The first is, say it with me, Charlie Pride, the second being the Pointer Sisters, to win a Vocal Performance Award at the Grammys in a country music category. Most recently, he released his seventh solo album, Carolyn's Boy, named after his mother, who unfortunately passed away in 1992 from a heart attack. He would also name his first child after his mother when she was born in 1995. As for Hootie and the Blowfish, Rucker says the band will probably never officially break up and keep releasing music whenever, forever, since they're all still such good friends. Next woman I mentioned earlier, Reese Palmer. Let's talk more about her. She also started out in R&B, but felt similarly to Darius Rucker and once told an interviewer, I love R&B music and urban music, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I knew I wouldn't be happy doing that. So she stopped recording R&B songs and for a few years sang jingles for Barbie commercials and recorded for a Dance Fever TV show and competed on Star Search, all while trying in vain to get a record deal in Nashville for seven years. In 2004, the documentary Waiting in the Wings, African Americans in Country Music was released, which heavily featured Reese and highlighted the contributions of Black Americans in country music while also questioning why so few have found success in the genre. It aired on CMT in February 2004. Starbucks actually was a pretty big factor in promoting Reese's music, as in 2006, Starbucks Entertainment distributed a four-song extended play of her music putting her among the top five best-selling country artists on iTunes at the time. Her debut album, Reese Palmer, was released in October 2007, with Reese co-writing nine of the 12 tracks. Her singles, Country Girl and Hold On To Me, both reached the top 100, and after releasing a cover of Jordan Sparks and Chris Brown's Ew, No Air, that song also reached the top 100 on the country charts. In August 2020, Color Me Country Radio with Reese Palmer debuted on Apple Music Country. The show, quote, brings to the forefront the Black, Indigenous, and Latinx histories of country music that for too long have been lived outside the spotlight and off mainstream airwaves. The next person I was going to talk about is Cowboy Troy, but turns out he's a trumper, so let's just skip this one. There was another artist I learned about who isn't very well known, and that is Mickey Guyton, born in Arlington, Texas in 1983. She moved around the state a lot growing up due to her father's job as an engineer. As a kid, she was first placed in public school, but faced racial discrimination from other families in the neighborhood and was moved to a private school. But the private school wasn't a whole lot better, and Mickey experienced much racial violence in her school years. 
In an interview from 2020, she said that her best friend's parents would often refer to her with racial slurs. She began singing when she was a kid and started developing a real interest in singing at the age of five, performing in church choirs. After graduating from high school, she moved to L.A. to pursue music, while also studying business at Santa Monica College and working several minimum wage jobs to support herself. She sang as a background vocalist on demo records and even auditioned for American Idol. She was cut just before the live shows for the Top 24 and only appeared on TV briefly. She was eventually noticed by Julian Raymond, a record producer who helped the careers of other country artists like Faith Hill and Keith Urban, and she moved to Nashville in 2011. She was very quickly signed to Capitol Records in Nashville. With her singing, she became the genre's only black female artist signed to a major label at the time. Shortly after signing with her label, she performed at the White House alongside Darius Rucker and other artists. Mickey has spoken openly about the pressure she has felt to stay within white audiences' expectations of country music. Others would tell her that doing otherwise would be seen as disingenuous. She has often chosen to write music that has reflected the struggles she has felt as a black woman. In early 2020, she released a single called Black Like Me. Black Like Me is based on a book of the same name and describes her experiences with racial, with racial discrimination. It was largely ignored by commercial country radio, but received a lot of attention on social media and streaming services. John Blake of CNN called it, quote, a three and a half minute song that flipped the good old boy patriotism of country music on its side and forced listeners to consider a different perspective. The song was nominated for Best Country Solo Performance at the Grammys that year, making her the first black female artist to be nominated in the country category. Another relatively little-known performer, Jake Blount, first received recognition in 2016 with his band Moose Whisperers when they won the traditional band contest at the Appalachian String Band Music Festival in West Virginia. Their music is considered African-American traditional and Afrofuturism. He plays the fiddle, the banjo, and he sings. Country music has been marketed from the very beginning as the soundtrack of conservatism in some way, shape, or form. But country music within itself is much more complicated, as you can see. Since the start of the genre, there has been an air of protest, along with sentimental patriotism. And many of the most legendary country artists were left-wing outsiders, not nationalist idiots. From SkidmoreNews.com, quote, Music is shaped by those who market it, make it, and consume it. For decades since, country music has been dominated by white artists, marketed by a white industry, performing to white audiences. But the black artists that have been the foundation in making country music what it is today cannot be forgotten. For all the beer-drinking, boot-in-your-ass, American way, girls in tight jeans, red, white, and blue, truck-driving country, there's Johnny Cash defending prisoners and Native Americans. There's also themes of hardship and pain. And what is overlooked by white Americans is that hardship is at the core of the black experience in America, which bleeds into country music, which makes the two inextricably linked. Country music would not exist without the black experience and the overlooked yet tireless work by black musicians. Willie Nelson once said, you take country music, you take black music, and you get the same goddamn thing exactly. I don't really agree that it's the same exactly, but I think what he's trying to say there is that he knows where we got it from. There are other artists that put a big fuck you to the system, like Loretta Lynn warning her man not to come home a drinkin' with lovin' on your mind, and touted virtues of The Pill, an ode to birth control that was a bestseller despite being banned on many top radio stations. Country was about being an outlaw, anti-establishment, and stood for a lot of good while still having a lot of roots in patriotism. And I, for one, think that being a quote-unquote patriot should be wanting what's best for your country, not just blindly being hateful and wanting everyone in the country to look like you, a.k.a. white. But as time goes on, black artists have still faced difficulties breaking into the industry. In 2019, when Lil Nas X collaborated with Billy Ray Cyrus with their song Old Town Road, it was first listed on the Billboard country charts, but was quickly removed. Rolling Stone told Billboard, it does not embrace enough elements of today's country music to chart in its current version. At the same time, country music fans accused Lil Nas X of cultural appropriation for wearing a cowboy hat. Why are white people so stupid? 
And this isn't the first time that Beyonce has had some sort of controversy surrounding her releasing a country song. She released the song Daddy Issues in 2016, and many people said it wasn't country enough, despite having literally all of the elements needed to make it a traditional country song. Even after performing it with the chicks, country fans were still enraged. She submitted this record for a Grammy, but was denied. When Texas Hold'em was released during the Super Bowl a little over a week ago, more controversy has befallen the Queen Bee. An Oklahoma radio station, KYKC, initially refused to play the song from a listener's request, responding to the listener saying, quote, We do not play Beyonce on KYKC as we are a country music station. The listener posted it online and asked others to email the radio station to request the song. The station went on to receive hundreds of emails and phone calls, if you can imagine. The general manager of the station, Roger Harris, told the New York Times that he'd never experienced anything like it in his career. His defense was that he was unaware that Beyonce had released a country song. Quote, Up until now, she hasn't been a, quote, country artist. So he responded to the email the same way we would have responded to someone requesting a Rolling Stones song on our country station. Which, I thought the Rolling Stones was an interesting example for this because there are definitely some records that I would consider to have a very strong country influence, so maybe pick a better example. The manager also added that the station also didn't have a file for the song at the time, and that now they do. The song Texas Hold'em brings the Houston-born singer back to her Texas roots as she sings about hoedowns, dive bars, and rugged whiskey over a twangin' banjo, played by Black musician Rhiannon Giddens. Rhiannon has long advocated for the reclamation of country music instruments by Black musicians and plays the banjo and viola on the song. It's also important to point out that Black women are especially left out. Black women face both racism and sexism, which are both stacked against them while trying to break into the country music industry. This was also from SkidmoreNews.com. Quote, It is crucial to advocate for and legitimize Black history. Black people are the central target of the United States' oppressive structures, constantly told that so many pieces of American culture are not for them, both basic needs like healthy, low-cost food, proper education, housing, and so on, are often viewed as white domain. In reality, American culture was built on the backs of black people. It's time to properly recognize the history and give credit where it is due and support black country artists. Oh my goodness, I had so much fun working on this episode. I literally wrote the whole thing yesterday, did it all in a day, feel great about it. I hope that you all enjoyed all of this and I am going to go continue working on the episode on the Attica Prison Uprising. But before I go, if you want to support the show and you want to make sure I can keep the lights on in this little studio I have in my bedroom, go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or click on the link in the show notes to join me on Patreon and choose whatever level works best for you. And if you love this show and you think others would too, I would not be mad if you wanted to go to your Apple Podcast app on your iPhone and leave me a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. And you can also like rate on Spotify if you like really want to. Just a suggestion. All right, everyone. That is all I have for you today. Thank you for your patience on this episode. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of Go Kid Go and a mom to two kids. Join my family on the story train with Calm Conductor Birdie each night as we travel through the magic rainbow tunnel to everywhere and anywhere to find the best bedtime stories. Search for Story Train on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.